Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 10th of March 2019. At the moment, uh, I've got a bit of a, uh, well, ice snowstorm coming down here. Again, in March, on uh, the 10th, and it's been one awfully long winter. It's still going on, obviously, because it's just snow for the next day or two, maybe. And ice pellets, too, mixed in, so it's quite something to have snow beginning in September and no thaws, basically, all the way to the present time. And there's no just building up and building up and building up. And, of course, they'll tell us once it's over, by the time the June rolls around, that it's been the warmest winter in history. Because we live in such nonsense today, don't we? That's how bad it is, because there's a big, big agenda. And the folk literally, the people have no idea at all. I mean, really, at all. Even the ones who think that they've looked into it in any kind of detail, they've no idea how old and how, how all-encompassing this agenda is. It's everything for the ones who control the world. It's going for broke, basically. We'll be broke, they'll win. But that's how it all works out, you see. Very ancient agenda. And they couch it in all different kinds of terms and world orders and globalism and global governance and global government, even. There's even articles in different papers talking about, is it time for global government? They keep floating the trial balloon, getting you used to the idea. It's quite something to see, actually. And to live through it. But folk have no idea, because we were taught just to accept things as they are. And anyone who knows what's going on, who doesn't belong to the elite, are obviously conspiracy nuts. That's what they'll call you, you see. That term itself was put out by intelligence agencies after the death of Kennedy, back in the, the 60s. To ridicule anybody who just pointed out so many inconsistencies in the Warren Commission's report. And it works awfully well. The public is so sad, isn't it, how things work so uniformly, repetitively well for the elites. It's like the mob in ancient times, or the Middle Ages, say, when someone was going to get their head cut off by royalty for some reason or another, like Henry VIII's period, for instance, and people would go to it, and it was like a kind of fair thing for them, because that was the, the most entertainment they generally got in their lives, and there would be jesters going around the crowds, like jokers, they would sell things at these fairs, basically. And they'd all see their blood and guts and go back going, ooh, ah, ooh, just like, just like a horror movie. And it was just too easy, too easy for the proclamation read by Hoover was speaking on behalf of the Crown, reading out the sentence as to what they did, even though they, the, even the public and their subconscious knew these people didn't do that, anything like this, wherever it happened to be. But that was good enough for them. And nothing's changed. Today says you conspiracy theorist. Who says so? Hmm? Someone in authority of the government says it's a conspiracy theory. But that's what you get, isn't it? Because you're counterintelligence, which is counter to intelligence. That's what counterintelligence means. And all the spy agencies have them. Your government has internal and external agencies dealing with that. And internal ones deal with the people inside the country. It's astonishing, but just like the crowds and woo ah woo, as the axe comes down after after the reading of the verdict and the reason for it, they're just the same today as they were then, really. Well, yeah, conspiracy, not you. Yeah. And that's what they'll label anybody who comes out with, even if you're reading official articles from the government. Isn't that astonishing? Isn't that amazingly astonishing? You can read them 
from the government's own websites and departments and agencies. And, and people will still class you as a conspiracy nut because you have some strange inquiry, or you've made a strange inquiry, into, into finding out in the first place. That means you're nuts, you see. Because they would never think about looking in the first place. They're, they'd rather not know. That's the difference. So anyway, this is part three. Uh, it really wasn't going to be a, a three-part thing on eugenics and the plan, the big agenda. It's a big agenda. You heard Bush Sr. at the time, when he was the president, talking about a new world coming into view, a new world order. His son said the same thing about ten years later, exactly. It's quite fascinating to live through this and watch it and hear it all happening, encoding that, that the public don't understand. What do they mean a new world order coming into view? You know, coming into view. Whose view? Uh, whose world order? Who planned it? And even, even with terms like it's ancient and things like that. Ancient plan? What ancient plan? Did you know you're part of some ancient plan? Did you know that? It's really something, isn't it? So this is going to be part three, as I say. Because last week I, I covered a lot of stuff from eugenics too, and to touch on geoengineering and, and, and so on, and the different humanistic so-called sciences uh, that are part of this agenda to train the public into behaving in certain different ways and believing certain things too, which, which perhaps they shouldn't. So this is part three of Witness Signs of Huxley Blair's Ultimate Revolution using geneticists, biochemists and scientific collusion. This will be part three, I suppose. And I'll try and wrap some things And As I say, this, these last three talks, I haven't had time really to, to work much on them. It's a lot's from my head and all the rest of it because of this awful weather. I spend more time, honestly, during the day shoveling snow and cleaning the driveway and, and chiseling, literally chiseling, <laughs> really thick ice at times off my vehicle in order to get it out. It can take an hour and a half sometimes when it's so, so heavy with, with ice and snow. And sometimes two hours if the driveway is completely covered as well because of a long, long driveway. And the rest of the time you're trying to get snow off even the pathway at the back of the house so, so I can get in and out of the door. At the moment I'm kind of walking down a slanted snow slope to get it through the door. That's how bad it is. And try and get the snow off the roof as well because there's been a lot of damage, as I say, this year, this winter. To uh, people with, with even flat roofs, of course, naturally they get leaks all the time. Other people with strong roofs too, if they haven't managed to get the snow off it, then they get ice and then you get snow and ice like sandwiches of multi-layered snow and ice all the way until it's about three or four feet high or even higher. As I say, no thaws. It keeps building up and getting heavier and eventually the big kaboom happens and that's you. And I've had some kabooms here. At night, with the, the temperatures being minus 25 Fahrenheit, it's minus 30 Fahrenheit on many a night, actually, all the way through this winter. It's pretty regular this, this entire winter. But at night, yeah, incredible temperatures once you hit about 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning. And then during the day, most of the time, too, you're lucky if it hits 10 Fahrenheit, plus 10 Fahrenheit. You're really lucky. And it's still way below the freezing mark for the freezing point, I should say. So there, anyway, that's, that's our weather. But, but as I say, it'd be fantastic to hear that it's been the warmest uh, on record and that we've got to give up all our rights and freedoms to save the world from global warming. So that's what we're living through, farcical systems of uh, control. But as I say, the big boys planned this a long time ago. As I say, this is like months and months now. I haven't had time to even work on, on much at all. And the intellectual sphere is mainly on the physical sphere of clearing the snow.
you've got to understand what we're living through. A big agenda. And it's all around you. It's, it's, in, it's in all the symbols. It's always written in symbols. Because at one time, when religion ruled in, see, the Western world, and people were religious, which gave them their culture and, and a way of life so that they, they could at least help each other out. And when you didn't have welfare systems and welfare states and, and you had famines and things like that and bad crops, uh, people helped each other out. It was, it, was, it was utterly necessary to have a, a cohesive religion with its commandments of helping each other out, basically, and uh, looking after people as you would look after yourself, basically. And, of course, the, the, the enemies of all of this that use different terms, including reason, of course, cloaked themselves in societies, behind societies, that, that would uh, use terminology that would sound vague, vaguely religious. Sometimes they would sound religious, as though they'd taken things from, say, the holy books and so on. But in reality, they've got their own version of what it all means. And you'll find down through the ages that Lucifer is the hero, of course, of the, the particular uh, groups that all flourish from the same one group long ago. Lucifer really stands for intellect, intelligence, reason. Today, secular humanism too, of course, they have uh, it's the same kind of thing. But it is a religion, a belief system, that, that man's ability through his brain power, his intellect, and, and so on, he, he can make a utopia on the world and run things the way that it should be run according to those who, who, who want to rule it all, and who probably ought to do today, in fact. Under the guise of science, they try to validate all the different things that they have to rule over you with by using all these different sciences and using academia that you don't vote into any office, of course. And we're living in an age where everything's appointed to over you. It's appointed by governments to pretend that they're yours, but they've got nothing to do with you, in fact, except you pay them too much, in fact. But that's the way it is. But in the Middle Ages, and even beyond, right up to not too long ago, that they couch their terminology so that they didn't get found out as subversive of a system. And don't forget, up into the 1800s, especially in America, people would turn on anybody who wasn't blasphemed their religion. Blaspheming had a, a, a bigger attack, basically, focus on your whole culture, everything that, that kept you all working together and surviving together. That's really what it was. Bit by bit, it's been chipped away and chipped away, especially through the 20th century. And with massive wars and causing massive slaughter, that achieved many goals for those who, who were taking the world over because they had to put you into shock. They had to make you ask silly questions like, why does God allow the wars to happen? Well, if you've got free will, man, man can be guided into wars quite easily by those who are, who are rather evil. And, but the free will is free will. If you didn't have free will, you'd be a robot, which is what the other group want you to be, actually. A completely brainwashed um, robot, like Bertrand Russell wanted, Someone who you could train as a child and indoctrinate. Every, every belief, every thought that they had would be indoctrinated into them perfectly with, with scientific technique. And well documented. All my old talks have got this stuff in it. And remember, you can go into my archive section, cuttingthroughthematrix.com, because it goes way back. And every other talk show host out there and, and who covers any of was in my stuff all the time, including all the big shows, because why do the work when I've done it already? 
and they just reel it all off. And even the recent stuff annoys me too, because within the next few days you'll hear the top ones. The top ones part off the stuff I just, I've just put out a few days before. In the archive section, I gave lots of talks on what was called the occult, which is just hidden, of course. And even in ancient times, they, they, they had on, on say, um, Hebrew uh, accompanying uh, literature, uh, they didn't just have it in, in their writings. They, they had many other writings, too, that accompanied the, the ancient traditions and ancient happenings. Myth, partial myth. What is myth? Myth is generally something you can't validate anymore, but so is most of history, isn't it? You'll find, I think it was Oxford University Press put out a good book on, on Jewish myths and legends. It was called, I believe, if I remember right. And they had awfully good stories in it when you, if you really waded through it. And some of them were humorous, of course, and other ones touched on strange rituals that happened with certain sects that developed in the old Judea area, where one of the sects was pretty well exactly the same as the sects which developed in the Middle Ages in parts of, well, especially in France, parts of France, to do with the old Knights Templar stuff and all the rest of it that's been lumped into it. But they did have the same accusations that families and members of these groups would all go into these caverns or caves or underground passages, like a labyrinth thing, and they'd go through a ceremony, and lights would go off, would get, get blown off, and they'd literally have sex with whoever was next to them. It didn't matter what gender it was either, supposedly, or even if it was their own, their own kin. That was the same, same accusations that you find were given to not only Knights Templar groups that eventually moved into parts of France. Almost exactly the same, in fact. You find the rituals are so similar, very similar, to the Albigensians that lived in the southern France at one point, too. And uh, various Gnostic groups had very similar creeds of belief and behavior and culture in their systems where the world was pretty well evil, which you know, again, a lot of folk can't doubt that. But they, they, they actually said in Albigensians that uh, they, they should attempt to dissuade children from having, growing up to have infants. And uh, that can lead from one thing to the next until you have the ancient Greece philosophy, basically. The Greek philosophy had uh, had infanticide, so there's there's a lot more to it naturally um, than meets the eye. Even though different groups are always stigmatized by powerful groups who win eventually over them down through time, and that's the same right up to the present day. But it doesn't go into who who started it in ancient times or or whatever. But it it, it was fairly widespread in different uh, in, across that area long long ago. You also find old passages that were taken out. They might be not taken out of the Bible, and some versions might still be in them, but where those that take oaths and wink, you'll find it in actually the Old Testament, and shift their feet, because it's, it's a symbol of the right angle. When you, when you move your feet, you put them together in the right angle. Things like that. Ancient, still used today, of course, in, the, in Masonic rituals. There's actually a warning about them, those who wink and, and, and shift their, their feet in certain angles and so on. And then they talk about the ephod. The ephod can, can mean a basket, but it can also mean a, an, an eye, a symbol of an eye. All old stuff. Anyway, I did that years and years and years ago, more than 20 years ago. 
to show you that there's definitely organizations that come down through time that hide what they're up to from the general public every time, every, every stage in their evolution, you might say, or existence. Because it's heretical in all ages and all types of cultures as to what they're up to, <laughs> which is the overthrow of the current systems, especially the established religious orders, and in all cultures, by the way, in order to destroy it all and, and bring in their secular humanism uh, with themselves and selected people who are tested on IQ levels, no kidding you, and those in academia uh, and specialists and so on, who would rule over you. And that's the perfect world that you find even in, in Things to Come, the story of it from H.G. Wells, who was uh, into all this stuff, eugenics and, and population control, and, uh, and he hated the rabble, the working class rabble, etc. And all his kin did to all his friends and the agencies that he belonged to, associations. So it's never changed. And they have to get their goal through. Now, the organization at the top already owns the, the, the financial systems of the world. That was one thing they had to do was create a universal financial system. And it's central banks, of course. And all the central banks now are, are connected to the, the, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund and the Bank for International Settlements. These were all set up from the one organization. They did set them all, all up to the, across the planet, same thing. Any country that wouldn't go along with it has recently been bombed out of existence because you must borrow. You must borrow to be a part of the organization. And through the borrowing comes the demands on payment and to get the money that you're trying to borrow for your nation, uh, all the demands that you must implement social policies which have caused even a, a, a bit of chaos in Africa over the years when they start telling them what they have to decriminalize, you might say, in their society and on sexual areas and all that kind of stuff. So it's no longer, an idea, it never really was, an idea, a, a, the idea of what's lend people to, to different countries that don't have much money. No, no, it, it's a social change policy for those who don't quite get it. And it's directed from the West. And the World Bank, of course, even has ex-prime ministers from Britain working in it now. So it's, uh, this is their system of control. Ireland, too, is in the same boat, Southern Ireland, because they were encouraged to borrow like crazy from the EU bank, the central bank there, you see, knowing it was all going to collapse on them. The guys knew years ago it was going to collapse because that was the plan. And then, then they come in with the IMF branch uh, to demand uh, the payment. And they take over your system and they tell you how much you can spend on health care uh, and all that kind of stuff. And all the cutbacks you've got to go have austerity, in other words, at home. That's what it's going to be. And they dictate your social policies, you see. Maggie Thatcher had them in IMF and running, helped run the country when she was in, in office because of the massive debt that had been accumulated by different governments before her too. So this is a system. Now, it is a secretive society naturally at the top because you'll find out that none of the public voted for any of it, ever. You never got a chance to vote for any of it. The League of Nations was set up as, as a form of world government. That was the agenda. H.G. Wells wrote about it, praising it praising it, saying that the nation-state is dead, and now we can have bureaucrats from the nation-state directly working with departments in the League of Nations, because you'd have the equivalent departments in the League of Nations for everything, and, but it didn't quite pan out. People weren't ready to give up their sovereignty, so they had another world war. And he said that. He says, we need another war, 
because they haven't given up their sovereignty. So they use wars and everything to achieve many goals and, and to take over many much resources because the guys at the top of this organization do believe they've got the right to manage all the resources and even own the resources of the planet. <laughs> and they do pretty well through wars and conquest. Nothing's changed there. But anyway, they use this terminology of, of their goals, the new secular world order and expert-run world order. You'll find all the same terminology in all their writings from the Fabian Society Group, which is just a branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Whatever you're following out there, they run it. It doesn't matter what side you think you're on. I've gone through in the last couple of weeks some of the, the Huxleys, Orwell, George Orwell and, and Huxley, through the letters that they corresponded with between each other, because George Orwell was living through an amazing time, 1930s, uh, where literally everybody was so sick of this, this farce of either uh, a, a kind of monarchical democracy, which is a farce in itself. They're completely op- opposing systems. You can't have both together, which tells you that one rules and the other one doesn't. You know? They were so sick of it and the massive debts from World War I and the debts imposed on certain countries because of World War I that everything was falling apart. And it's true at the Paris Treaty... Where they, and, and the Treaty of Versailles, basically the Warburgs drafted up which, which that Germany would have to continue to pay uh, reparations to every nation, and it was pay off all their debts for the war, to the year, I think it was 1979 or 1989, that was what they originally had on, on, the, on the, the particular agreement. That they, well, it wasn't an agreement because the Germans weren't asked to agree to it. I mean, they were just told. Now, it's complete farce, and, and the top reporters at the time for world newspapers said that this will lead to another war, because obviously Germany can't afford to pay off everybody's debts. Never mind the fact that, believe you me, all the debt wasn't incurred by the countries just for the war either. It all went into big, big uh, pockets at the top, because we live in a crooked system. But anyway, they'd have to fight their way out of it, they said. Fight their way out, or, or just get starved to death and die. That's exactly what they said. I was reading a diplomat's... I'm a strange guy about his, his, uh, his biography. He was a Scots guy, but he, was, he became one of the, really the top negotiator in the, the, in the 1930s and 40s and onwards, even up to the, to the integration of the EU part of that. But he was picked because of his fluency in languages. They got him into the right societies and, of course, the right oaths, etc. And so he knew the agenda, but it, it was fascinating to read his, his, bits of his life. Because any big, big meeting at an international level for foreign affairs, he was there in charge of it generally for, for most of his life. And it was astonishing to see that, 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 that how they work feverishly, never stopping all the different organizations that you never vote for to push their own agenda through for leading for a world government. The same world government that Karl Marx talked about, a unified Europe as a trading bloc under a single parliament and a unified Americas under a single parliament. And that was discussed during the NAFTA meetings, by the way, the last NAFTA meeting, not, not the last ones, but the ones in the, uh, quite a few years back. I, I, I kept the articles and I read it on the air when I was on, the, on a radio show. Anyway, Orwell's um, idea was that uh, this, this incredible militarization uh, during the, the, the 20s and 30s because the governments were all falling apart, and the nations were falling apart through poverty and reparations, and not just Germany, every country was... Pr- Britain had massive taxation on the public, 
because of the war debts. Because you always pay for everything for the elites, you know. You, you pay for their costs. You, you put railroads in across the world as an empire. Uh, the public pay for all that. They staff it all. They pay for the armies and so on. They get the bills for everything, but they get nothing back to actually, say, profit-wise for themselves. It's, but the ones at the top certainly do. This oligarchy, they call whatever it is here, that, that runs your government, above the government, of course, naturally. Uh, and that's how it is. So... Orwell uh, brought 1984 out, published, I think, in 1947-48. In it, he, it was mainly because at that time the Soviet system, the Soviet system really w- was a test. It was, a, it was the second experiment called the, the Great Experiment. The first one was an American experiment to see if they could govern themselves. The general people, that is, the public. That was the idea behind it. And if they couldn't, then the society that formed it would rule them secretly from Behind, you might say, you know, or above them. They wouldn't know it. They'd still, they still think it was the same kind of government as if they failed to, to manage to, to look after themselves. Well, it's easy to destroy a culture so they can't look after themselves and point to all the problems they've got and say, law CCC, and then they start appointing agencies to manage you. And so they end up in the same... Eventually, they end up the same way as the Soviet Union. What we're living through today is actually the proper Soviet, you might call it, because they ironed out all the problems by observing all the things that went wrong the first time with the, with the Russian one, the Soviet Union. Remember, Soviet means ruled by councils. So you, there's, under, and their theory, which never worked out, but their theory was that you could bring in a system where all departments for labor would have their own council, their own, their own, own panel to run it, you see. And all kind of unions would have their own governments as well. So a Soviet means ruled by councils. But in, in reality, in the Soviet system, the, naturally the heads couldn't have any competition, so it would appoint the heads of the councils. They were all party members and, and uh, were bought and paid for uh, very, very well. That's human nature, unfortunately, anywhere. It's too easy to bribe folk off. I've seen it happen in all countries, actually. Bribes getting put across. So there's no shortage of folk who'll take the money and the bribes and, um, and really um, do the dirty on their fellows. No one's exempt from it. You'll find, too, that, that you see, the Soviet system was to, be, to, to use science. They couldn't ever get to that stage, but to use science and proper scientific indoctrination in a Pavlovian style, conditioned responses and all the rest of it, uh, 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 where they'd all feel guilty when they're told to feel guilty, even if they'd done nothing wrong. And... Um, if you were to say counter-revolutionary to to anybody, anybody they'd immediately go into almost a a, a paroxysm and a fit and uh, turn all kind of colours instilled in them. They're terrified of it. So language is very important. That's why they use language now. We're language police in North America and across Europe, where you, now you're getting forbidden to say certain things. Same thing, it's all Orwellian. Well, Orwell saw this happening in his day, and so he saw a, a stage, at least for 1984, a stage where you would have uh, the, the spy system, or everyone would get monitored, spied upon constantly, and as they go more and more uh, authoritarian, they would demand that you turn up for, and I've mentioned this before, you will eventually have to turn up for, for your community meetings and community parades and community this and community that, that you will eventually, and if you're not there, you'll get a knock on the door and you'll get dragged out or fined or something. That will come in this system, that the part of, this, that this part of, of the system that we're going through right now, 
There's no doubt about it. In Britain, the police are, are, are contacting people who've used words they're not supposed to use anymore. And they get warned about it. So they're giving you a warning now. Well, that's a threat, you see. Your government agencies are threatening people. So you're already under, under tyranny, obviously. And it's not going to stop there. Not going to stop there. Because, you see, your idea of freedoms are all delusions. Complete delusions. You really haven't had them. You really haven't. Because most of the things you do and say already, were, you're, they were given to you to say and do. <laughs> there's nothing out there. There's not a movement out there that doesn't have leaders supplied to you. Believe you me. That's, how, that's why the system has never failed. It's never fallen apart. But if you go into this, for instance, here's an example. World government, eh? There's so, so many articles, even from governments' websites themselves, but world order, like a new world order, a new world order, all that stuff. The stuff the general public will laugh at because you say it. You, you get it from the government websites themselves and articles. But also, world government. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, you're probably talking about world government. Well, the Carnegie Council, these big, big foundations that run the thousands of non-governmental organizations that manage you all. That's the Soviet system. That's the new Soviet, you see, the, the perfected Soviet. You don't elect them. They all have the same goals in mind, but they've specialized parts of their agenda for themselves. And they're all funded by and paid for, and even have pension plans by the big foundations, tax-free foundations, the Ford, uh, the Carnegie, and Rockefeller, and, and many others. Many, there's stacks of them out there, because it's one big club. One big club across the planet. And they have a resurgent idea of world government. Oh, conspiracy. Where's that? That's from the Carnegie Council publication in the journal. I think it was 22, 2, SC001. That's it's all there, you see. So they have a resurgent idea of world government. You see, it's maybe time for it. You find the Financial Times had it in it too. Is it time for world government? You've got foreign affairs. World government and an illusion of world government talking about they have not achieved the goal yet. There's just too many uh, little arguments they're having to have the world government. So, but here all is, eh? Uh, from their own websites, world government, world government. You're used to, you've been used to for quite a few years here, but governance, world governance, meaning, oh, that's not the same thing. Well, of course it's the same thing. You don't even need a building for world government. You just need to have organizations all working together, especially now uh, with the internet, and ruling your life quite easily. Quite simple, isn't it? It's well in the way of what they want at the top. And it's always been this agenda, always the goal of taking over the resources of the whole planet, running it properly. What they actually say is, is finishing the creation. Uh, the builders, so they're, they're the builders, they say, that take the material that was left unfinished, and it's their job to complete it and perfect it all. And so the symbology of the, of the Tower of Babel, of course, and of course we also know that's one of the, the main buildings, they rebuilt <laughs> the, ruined, the ruined tower uh, for, their, for their annual EU meetings, of course. Or actually, it's, they have it three or four times a year, uh, that particular building. It's very symbolic. I mean, you couldn't get more symbolic than that, could you? But it's also the world itself, that the, this, this deity left the world unfinished, didn't perfect man, or maybe he made him immortal, but he changed his mind with, with the curse, basically, you see. But anyway, they, they claim the world's left uh, imperfect, and so they want control of the weather, 
control of everything, control of the general population, control of, of the numbers of the populace, control of what they'll need and, what they, when, and, and elimination of that which they don't need. Uh, that's basically eugenics, right? Straight there, you see. It's all right there. There's nothing to guess at at all. And the, the same organization that runs every other major organization, uh, that created this one organization, did create the United Nations out of the League of Nations. They still want that to be a world government. They created the World Bank. They created the IMF, the, the Bank for International Settlements across for, for the whole planet. And basically, they're, they're, they're privately owned banks, but funded by us. How is that again? We pay for everything, this public-private idea. They take all the profits from everything. Because it's their right to do so. Because they rule the world, you see. And you don't vote for them. And we've got no votes to create the United Nations. We've got no votes from the public. Never mind their wars they give you. You ever get a vote for a war? Do you want to go to a No, of course you don't get that. Never will either. Because the wars have different functions than the ones you're, you're trained to think that they have. And as I say, H.G. Wells mentioned one of them, and that was to bring every country to its knees through mass slaughter. So they're so fatigued and terrified and horrified at the mass slaughter and, and fatigued at, 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 at the rationing that would come out of it and half starved, and which happened, by the way. Uh, that, that then in came the United Nations at the end of World War II, and they had all these articles. You see the old articles, old newspapers and so on, where, where they, they, were, they were planning to just establish themselves as a world government. Uh, but they still didn't get that there was too much opposition from the general populace. And Wells said again, they need another war to bring them to their knees on behalf of the Fabian Society and the elitists that he, he, he worked with. But Barry Goldwater also talked uh, about it, and he himself was a senator for oh, most of his life, I think. And like all politicians, there's corruption. I don't, you can't touch politics without corruption. So I don't trust any of them. At the end of his, his time, once he retired from it, he, he became left-wing and went along with all the, the left-wing agenda, all of it, you know, all the, all the taboo things at one time, but he went along with them eventually. Rather strange, if you really have any principles. But he did say, he talked about the Trilateral Commission, which is a specialized branch that came out of the Council on Foreign Relations, this, this, this big branch that runs most of the world now. And as parent company in Britain, which is the Royal Institute for International Affairs, that used to be called the, the Lord Alfred Milner Group, uh, because they ran the empire, this group, the secretive group, when there was an empire there. And then they passed a torch to America with a bigger tax base. They'd already plundered uh, Britain until, until they were impoverished, uh, malnourished with wars and rationing up into the 1950s. Uh, until most of the population, the working class, had rickets and goodness knows what else, you know. I'm not kidding you. But they passed the torch to America with a bigger tax base. Now, they, they had created a tax base in America, and uh, that was all done with the establishment of the Federal Reserve in 1913, all getting set up for World War I coming along, and along with it came the, the right to tax the public, you see. And, and so they could borrow as whatever they wanted from their private, uh, these private bankers, and private banks, and then the taxpayer would have to pay it all off, all the debt. That's the example of taking across the whole planet, starting in London to America and across the whole planet. Same organization. Goldwater did say in, in his book, With No Apologies, he said, um, the Trilateral Commission that, that really broke out 
into existence to the general public when Jimmy Carter came in. He, he was surrounded by them for the first time, and people said, what are these trilateral groups? Where is this commission? This private group, again, is a private They're all private clubs. The CFR, you don't vote them in for anything, but they're, they're running everything. And the trilateral commission really is, is the technocrats that are displaced everywhere to actually get jobs done, whether they're, they're, they're elected or not. They're disappointed everywhere across the world, and including the central banks. And two of them were, were appointed to look after Italy when they bankrupted Italy, and another one uh, for Greece. Amazing, eh? So they can override every country's, or at least what they, they, they're not supposed to, but they simply do. I mean, who's going to stop them? They're appointed to take over your country uh, when, when you're bankrupt again by the same banks that they work for. They're the movers and shakers, and their ex-prime ministers, ex-presidents belong to it. Bush Sr. was one, and they're not beholden to the public for anything. Anyway, see, he's what Goldwater has said in the book. He says, the Trilateral Commission is intended to be the vehicle for multinational consolidation of the commercial and banking interests by seizing control of political government of the United States. Seizing control of political government of the United States. Hmm? There's some part of that you don't understand there. You don't elect these people, they're appointed everywhere until they are running your governments. And they're in all parties, because the parties are all a joke. Anyway, he says, in my view, the Trilateral Commission represents a skillful and concerted effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical. The Commission emphasizes the necessity of eliminating artificial barriers to world commerce, that's taxes and trade and, and all the rest of it, and import duties. Says what it proposes to substitute is an international economy managed and controlled by international monetary groups through the mechanism of international conglomerate manufacturing and business enterprises. What he's talking about here is what Quigley talked about, a new feudal system basically run by corporate to CEOs, etc. This was in 19, I think, 1979 that... Uh, Goldwater wrote that. And it says, um, freedom, spiritual, political, economic, is denied any importance in the trilateral construction of the next century. This is is the one we're living in now. So remember, this was written uh, about 1979. So freedom, spiritual, political, economic, is denied any importance in the trilateral construction of the next century. What the trilaterals truly intend is the creation of a worldwide economic power superior to the political power of the nation-states involved. They believe the abundant materialism they propose to create will overwhelm existing differences. As managers and creators of this system, they will rule the future, rule the world, basically. Always the old, old agenda, hmm? But of course, once uh, I should, this, this is uh, my own words, but once they've uh, done all that, of course, we have to pray well done. That's what the whole free trade system's about. That's why they, they, they get the, the GATT treaty on steroids and, and brought China up uh, and made them uh, the, the manufacturers for the planet. China didn't do it themselves. So there you go. And they overwhelm existing differences with, with abundant materialism. So materialism would put you all to sleep, basically. If you tie that in with the lectures and the talks 
that uh, Aldous Huxley gave, where he said that you know the people would be willing slaves, basically kind of happy uh, slaves, contented slaves, uh, and it's through materialism, you see, shop till you drop, etc., credit cards, blah 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 blah, and once they change and start withdrawing the surplus from from the, uh, the materialistic system and bring into austerity. You'll still go along with her system as long as you, you get little freebies here and there, little cheap things here and there too. You'll still go along with it. But in the process, initially, there'll be no, no complaining at all as they take out all your rights away from you. That's already happened, basically. So the last part again, freedom, spiritual, political, and economic is denied any. So you have no, no, no economic freedom, right, for anybody or any nation eventually. Uh, or political uh, system different from the universal one they're bringing in, and the spiritual one, they're, they're going to have no, no credence to any particular religion eventually. They'll use them. They'll use different ones uh, to be the, 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 top, the top ones that will appear to be the top ruling religions for a period and then destroy them naturally. Because the system has destroyed the religions of the West quite, quite successfully, didn't it? They brought in the, the sex, 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 sexual revolution, right? 1960s, they brought an abortion for everybody. So don't worry about the fallout from, from the sex. You see, the, the state will take care of it. Uh, until marriage, that one of the goals, the, the goals, isn't it strange? The, you think it's strange, it's just not strange at all, that the goal of Marxism was the destruction of the family unit. Huh? And for most folks, eventually the destruction of private property. Read Agenda 21 for private property, folks. Agenda for the whole 21st century. Huh? The twenty thirty is just parts of it, segments of it as you go through it that they must achieve. But but the thing for the whole 21st century uh, has all of that in it too. Hmm? It's on track for this new uh, improved system. The same thing will happen uh, even with Islam too down the road. That's what they hope for. Because once a culture that's had so many taboos about certain things uh, for, 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 uh, to restrain themselves into a workable society and you bring them into the West and, and if they can keep that going, the massive deluge of, of sexual uh, images uh, you're deluged with from childhood right through on, on television and movies and everything, uh, you know, that'll all work with everybody. It doesn't matter who they are. Until they fall apart too. So again, like the, the the old song of the of the Rolling Stones in tribute to the devil, basically, uh, time is on my side. They, they they don't care if it takes them twenty years or thirty years or forty to bring a particular people down. And it will be interesting to see if if Islam can, can uh, will really push really against all that stuff and try to keep their family units intact and their systems intact. Or will they, I think already a lot of the young guys are already falling to the temptations, and it's been it's been well noticed by by those um, by their elders. But we're living through this massive system uh, of, of incredible control. We really are, and the West has been through uh, all the different revolutions, uh, thinking it was all fun. Isn't it amazing how they? Oh, it's all fun, you know. In the 60s, yeah, just do it, yeah, take drugs, do it, and, and have fun, fun, yeah? As they destroyed it all, and here you are, and folk can't even get a friend for more than a, a month or two, you know? The genders are all screwed up, 
uh, with relationships because they can't get anybody to stay with them pretty well. Or if they, if, they, if they initially do, they'll get bored with them if they keep watching television and movies. They're, they're, the whole job is to make you unhappy with what you have. <laughs> it's a war strategy, you see. Most war strategies and revolutions are bloodless. But incredibly effective. Anyway, that was what Goldwater said in, in I think, 79. So the, the Trilateral Commission placed all their, their, these technocrats in all these positions of control. Uh, they're not responsible to the general public or to complaints from the general public. They do what they're, 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 they're planned to do, and they get on with it. They're not... They're not answerable to the public. Maggie Thatcher said that she was then, when she retired, she said she now belonged to a group. And she's talking about the group, same group actually, in Britain, under, under the Royal Institute for International Affairs group. And she says, she says, I know all the ex-prime ministers and presidents across the world and the top bureaucrats, basically. And she says, we can get things done without being responsible to the public. Here you go. You get all the clues all the time. And folk miss it because you're trained to be a child and to stay a child and to leave your thinking to your, what you, you're trained to think as your betters. These, these special names and special people on television with, that speak with authority, you know, and they're, and they're built up like superstars and they speak with authority. That's why they kept anchor men and women, on television for their entire lives as they were falling off the chairs as geriatrics. Because you, the people grew up with them. It was so evident in the U.S. And Britain was the same. There was a, a particular guy in Britain who spent his, his, his life in the BBC. And anything important ever happened that whole time. Uh, he, he was the one to tell you in a stern way uh, what was happening in the official manner. And that it was like his law. You had the same thing in the U.S. too. And, of course, in the U.S., they were all members of the World Federalist Society, these, these characters. And that's just the way it is, you know. The ones that gave you your news, that's the way it is, yeah. All looking for, for, for an agenda that the public were completely ignorant of, but the public would, would take their opinions that were given to them and just parrot them without thinking. Who would lie to you? I mean, how trusting a child are you? If you looked at the history of the world and at every nation, the histories, they're all so similar. It's astonishing. Maybe I'm prattling too much because the time just runs out here. And I'll have shoveling with snow to do shortly. And I'll put up the one on world government, some of the links for world government, from the official sites, from governments themselves. <laughs> and we can, we can have all that there too. Also too, they give you your superstars. I remember it's one of the brand guys who, who was targeted by the Unabomber, and, and the Unabomber mentioned really why he was targeting this, this particular group. This is part of the group that, that was bringing you the, the, the new culture. They worked with the CIA. Uh, the guy Brandt, had a, he, he said in one of his talks that uh, part of, it, of his job was to make scientists, I mean the ones who would lead you into superstars, so you'd follow them and you'd follow their opinions. Can you think of any today? Of course you do. These guys make, it's the same machinery of, of making a nobody into, into a pop star or a rock star or whatever. Same thing. Zuckerberg, another one too. Oh, yeah, you just, <laughs> a front man. Anyway, it says, outlines privacy-focused vision. And um, 
and that's to do with the, with the, all the all the, the, the well anybody who still uses the, what they give you you know you know what they're doing you want to be a little child monitored by by big brother that's, that is your right to do so and also last week i think or the week before i mentioned to this is deep fakes what they call deep fakes and it says the scope of high-tech deception keeps growing, and experts say deepfakes could become the biggest threat to truth. It's when an, an, an artificial intelligence algorithm, a neural network, generates a video that never happened, never happened, by either swapping one face for another or by allowing someone's motions and voice to be mapped onto another person. It's a video that has been created by essentially feeding in a computer algorithm lots of images of a person, said Andy Grotto, national security expert and professor at Stanford University. It could be video, it could even be audio, and you feed it through enough of that content, and over time the algorithm learns how to mimic that content. Technology that powers deepfakes is only growing more sophisticated, and they give examples of where it is now. These early deepfake videos looked obviously doctored, but BuzzFeed produced a frighteningly realistic example last year by having actor and director Jordan Peele make a PSA about deepfake, uh, deepfakes as former U.S. President Barack Obama. It goes on and on. Not to show. This is how they're going to give you the, the fake trials that are going to come down the road when you, did you say something like that? Oh, it was 1984, uh, where you're, you're pulled into the Ministry of Truth, you know, and the Ministry of Love will ask you all the questions, but was it torture you? And we're here, folks. And then they'll, 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 then they'll bring out uh, the deep fakes and say, this is a video of you saying that, or being here, or saying that, or whatever. And the public will go along with it, because the authorities said it. The authorities said it. Quite something, quite easy, isn't it? To do with eugenics too. Now, don't think that China, as I said before, is 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 does things by itself. It's created by the West, same group that runs and owns the West now, the same uniform system. And really, uh, that China is their is their, their their shining example of the perfectly ordered socialist system, run scientifically, and the West helped them and set it all up. And give them the expertise and the money. I mean, they even put our factories over there. We paid for our factories to be up to dismantled and put over there under the free trade agreement. And we lost all the jobs at home. Nobody was given a vote on that. Just these technocrats again. And your governments all signed on to it. And that's it. You never ask your opinion for anything that matters, folks. Never will be either. So the Chinese government may have funded disgraced scientist He Jianq to create the world's first gene-edited babies, report claims. That was the mail online. And it said that the documents seen by medical news site STAT, S-T-A-T, suggest that Chinese scientist uh, He Jianqu uh, may have received money from three separate government institutions in China. Now, China's not the only country. Every country's been doing this. Gene editing. India's been doing it for quite, quite some time, actually. And they've had documentaries on the TV years ago on that, where they, they, they actually talked to some of the people who had, it, had their babies um, designed, basically. Genes removed, another one's replaced, etc., for, for, for height, uh, and for looks, etc. It's odd, too. The different cultures, what they go for first, where it's high, high, high intellects, or looks, etc., or height, you know. It's quite interesting to see what they go for. 
every country has been doing this, and, the, and every nation, because uh, that article was years ago, and all the top magazines and newspapers about uh, the British, and then, then the, the U.S. military especially, making, making the new robotic-type soldiers that be basically cloned. So it's, don't think that, that, that by some silly little bit of paper that they've all signed, they don't do it. Of course they do it. Same with biological warfare. It never stopped with all the treaties. Never did. So you can't blame China. It's interesting though, that they, they put it across there, making you get used to an idea that this is coming, just like I've said before, like the movie Gattaca, with the, the expertly run society, of course. Um, you'll find the trained front people, and they really do, they pick them as children and train them for positions of leadership. You'll find the big NGOs have ads about that, and, and they actually say about, you know, they're about thing and what they're up to and so on. They tell you that they'll pick youngsters with the aptitudes and train them for positions of power and leadership. They all do that. So, so much for spontaneous people appearing who just appear out of nowhere. Now, these people are all trained and selected, and they're devoted, believe you me, to the agenda, because that's all that's been drummed into them their whole lives long, and they're well rewarded for it as they mislead you and lead you up the garden path. All of them do that. So you don't have a free society. You'll never get anybody who's genuine who's going to talk for you. It ain't going to happen, folks. No way. I mentioned last week too, but Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, the so-called Democrat, who came out as they put her up to be a star, the star machinery again, a little nobody, uh, who's, oh, it's, it's legitimate for young people to ask if it's okay to have children, you see? Because, you see, don't forget that they floated that idea too uh, in all their socialistic meetings for well over 150 years about limiting people having children and using the China model, but also before even the China model came along, in fact, when they were still not, they weren't communist, they were pushing the same idea in the late 1800s in Britain and into the early 1900s. George Bernard Shaw said the same thing. He was all for it. He says, we'll decide if you can have children or not, according to your IQ level, etc. That was all part of it, folks. They breed out all the bad folk, all the, the general public, you see, the, the, the commoners, because they're awfully snobbish, believe you me. The Democrats, liberals, and conservatives, they're awfully snobbish at the very, very top. They all are, because they all belong to the same clique. And they don't send their children to ordinary schools either, folks. Uh, it doesn't matter if they pretend to speak for the working classes. It's like Britain, none of them do. None of the ones that, that are pushing for, uh, uh, that, and telling that the education system's fantastic in ordinary schools in Britain, none of them send their children to them. All the politicians for Labour, I think, are all go to the best private schools. Because they, they, you know, they're going to make sure their children are going to be the winners. Of course they are. Big agendas on the go. But they, they, they give you the leaders. They certainly do. When I was going through that eugenics movement about Julian Huxley, for instance, big player, and a big player, incredible. The man was incredible. I mean, he, he voiced everything I'm saying here openly in his big speeches. And eventually uh, he, he, was, he was up there with Planned Parenthood, of course, and he was a member of UNESCO, or the head of it for a while, to create a common culture by indoctrination of children across the world. That's how you do it.
You give them the topics, you, you brainwash them into them. Oh, the sky is falling, too many people. Oh, sustainability, yada, yada, yada. Going way back to the early 1900s, folks. There's nothing new. And at the same time, about 1950 and so on, they set up all the, the ecological organizations as far back at the same time that Julian Huxley, he was involved in them all. That's the one that, that, that eventually uses a big stick. Oh, we're destroying the world. The, uh, Gaia will kick back at you and, uh, and, you'll, and it'll just shake itself and you'll all die because you've mistreated her, you see. They've tried everything they can. So sustainability and the sky is falling is the one they, 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 they chose and, and they've stuck to. And now it's, it's the, the religious mantra, uh, basically the trained generation of children. To, 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 to quote the mantra, what did, what did was it that, that Lenin said? We shall win by slogans, slogans about it all the time. Look at these rallies and the dead, 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 the slogans. That's what, you know, it's only a three-worded slogan repeated over. Just like Orwell said, four legs good, two legs bad. Hmm? Mind you, today, I guess you can have as many legs as you want. It's your, it's your choice to do so. But it says here, the Ecological Society of America, every side, and Britain too, you see, they've got a branch in every country now, is a professional organization of ecological scientists based in the United States and founded in 1915. ESA, Ecological Society of America, uh, publications include peer-reviewed journals, newsletters, fact sheets, and teaching resources. It holds annual meetings at different locations in the U.S. and Canada. In, a, in addition to its publications, I don't mean ESA is engaged in public policy. Do you vote for them? No, you don't. Of course not. Science, education, and diversity issues. Isn't that interesting, eh? It's 10,000 members are researchers, educators, natural resource managers, and students in over 90 countries. Members work on a wide range of topics from agroecology, that's all your food supply, to marine diversity, and explore the relationship between organisms and their past, present, and future environments. You have to understand what you mean by organisms and their past, present, and future environments. It's a topic in itself. That uh, they're all brainwashed into all these organizations are, and eugenics too. The site has over 20 typical sections and seven regional chapters. That's quite interesting, as I say. The people who are all members of it and at the beginning, etc., you'll find in the branches in Britain for these organizations that did share the same offices in London at one point for most of them. You find that. Julian Huxley was, was up there as members of them of the boards, actually. It's quite fascinating how, you, how you, sustainability, eugenics, etc., are all tied together in, in this one organization's mindset that rules the world and where they're going with it all, too. You, you find um, the molecular vision of life, getting back to this molecular vision of life, how the aims of eugenics, social control, and human engineering shaped molecular biology and the 20th century science. It's interesting. But you have to understand what they're talking about, the molecular vision of life and how it all ties in with eugenics and how, how the Rockefellers literally uh, funded it all uh, and put it through Caltech 
uh, and uh, this is the, the rise of the new biology of how you, you would now look at humans and everything else in your place in, in the world is, is like, a, like a species, like, like a, any bacterium in a sense, and how you can manipulate it all. Control, it was, that was the function of, of training, so the people would believe it all, and it would give them social control. And they can go into human engineering by teaching them a, a kind of slanted version of, and a way to look at society and people. It's molecular, it's constructs, rather than actual complete human beings. It's quite fascinating to me in a way. It might bore you, but it's fascinating to me. Yeah, Julian Huxley, it's astonishing all the things he's been involved in, absolutely. Julian Huxley and the continuity of eugenics in 20th century Britain. Very good article. And this is the life and ideas of Julian Sorrell Huxley. Represent not only considerable contributions to evolutionary theory, but also to eugenics, thought and social planning. I haven't mentioned anybody yet who's elected to anything by the public. Huxley's career in history was, was complex and disjointed, making him an international and very much a public figure. They made a star of him too. Same thing, star-making machinery. This paper sees Huxley's peripatetic career as linked to ideological agendas, not least of a new world order, it says here. And it goes on and on and on. The problems addressed here are first extent of con- continuities in eugenics, commitments from his interwar views, and second to determine the contours of Huxley's post-Second World War eugenical thinking. And Huxley emerges as, as a crucial bridging figure from what has been referred to as old eugenics, and up to Germany and Nazis using it in World War Two, and they copied it all from the West, by the way, and for, especially from America. <laughs> they got um, slammed for that. So Huxley, uh, Julian Huxley, uh, reinvented it, you see, under different terminology, but kept it alive and well, and was all for um, phasing out. He wanted to breed only the well-to-do upper-middle-class types. Uh, and and to gradually kill off basically one way or another all the rest of the public that they didn't need anymore. This guy, his, his test bed was the British public. Don't think these people ever stand for you and see and relate to you as, as, as their own. They do not do that. Never have done that, folks. Never have. Never have. But it's quite an interesting little, and of course they don't, they don't condemn the guy either. They, if anything, make excuses for him, but uh, it's interesting to see them. They go into the Galton Club, formed at the college, you know, in Oxford. And further debates took place at the Oxford Union from 1919 to 1925. Huxley was a fellow at New College and the population geneticist J.B.S. Haldane, Huxley's former fag, they call it Eaton, was a fellow from 1919 until 1922. Huxley's students uh, include the cytologist and contraceptions pioneer Jai R. Baker, who was undergraduate at New College from 1919 to 1922, and population geneticist E.B. Henry Ford, it says here. The biosocial theorist represented a political spectrum from Haldane on the extreme left to Ford and the later Oxford recruit, the botanist Darlington on the extreme right. They all continued to exert influence on questions of biology and society uh, on into the 1960s. Actually, beyond that, too. So these movements with their, with their philosophies are a very old agenda, folks. Very old agenda. And it's still going on today. Uh, Bertrand Russell, of course, was a good friend of them all, of course, and worked with them, too. 
and he was quite blatant about them by the use of uh, injections, diet injections and injunctions we can reduce the population. Uh, Russell also said you can really dumb the people down when you're doing all that too. He's quite, quite blatant about it through the same kind of methods as well, apart from just bumping them off. It's really fascinating to see different characters involved in this and the, the, the complete uh, connection. How, how they even used, by the way, and how Julian Huxley did it too, uh, became a, a supposed zoologist. He started talking about wildlife to get all the young children on. And during all the talks and wildlife and the little furry animals and stuff, you don't realize you're getting brainwashed as a child into, well, I guess that applies to people too. I mean, if there's too many, you must call them off. Every country has been given their favorite uh, zoologist to, to, who all talk about the same things, and too many of this population, too many of that, and then eventually as they get older, they start talking about too many of you. <laughs> there you go. Political and economic planning. It's another PEP group as well to do with eugenics in Britain uh, that Julian Huxley was involved in. All the top ones were too. It says it was a British policy think tank formed in 1931 in response to Max Nicholson's article, National Plan for Britain. National Plan for Britain. Eugenics, right? Uh, published in February of that year in, in uh, Gerald Barry's magazine, The Weekend Review. Original members included Nicholson. This is a, a private organization again, right? They belong to all the other top organizations. So, so Nicholson and Barry, the zoologist Julian Huxley, and agronomist Leonard Elmhurst, the financier Basil Phillips Blackett, and the civil servants Dennis Roth and Sir Henry Bunbury, and the research chemist Michael uh, Zvegintsov, and Israel Zaif, a director of Marks and Spencer. Zaif was chairman in the 1930s, followed by Elmhurst in 1939 and by Nicholson in 1953. It was a non-governmental planning organization financed by corporations to do with eugenics on the general public, folks, and too many of them, etc. The prolific organization was influential in the formation of, guess what, the National Health Service. So they helped draft up stuff before, long before it came in, right? But remember, the National Health Service... To the general public, now, it's just like today with all the, the, the cheaper goods from China. Oh, wow, it's great. What's the real motive of it all? I've already read it to you. To overwhelm you with, oh, it's fantastic. They start taking rights away from, oh, well, we've still got all this free stuff and cheap stuff. And, you know. It's always an, oh, well, so what? And the same with National Health Service. Don't forget the agenda of the eugenicists was to bring down the population <laughs> uh, by all means possible. And what's their favorite technique? Even um, Ronald Reagan talked about the, the most fearful things that citizens can hear. It's from officials coming to their door saying, we're from the government, we're here to help you. Because you better be on guard. National Health Service, inoculations, and in no time at all, with a span of maybe, you know, less under 20 years, they were doing abortions on National Health Service in Britain. And um, so they, again, a, a eugenics depopulate, etc. And once you have a national health service, then you simply have uh, your abortion days, and they do have their abortion days. Well, every hospital over in Britain has them. That's all they do. You know? And they couldn't do that without having a national health service.
And now with the National Health Service, uh, they, they don't have the money. They've got lots to do with all kind of strange things in the National Health Service and strange operations and stuff. But for, for really essential things, that they claim that they're broke. So you have to say, well, why isn't it doing the main things that was really designed, you thought it was designed to do in the first place? Well, maybe you thought it was designed for something else in the first place. They always give you candy to begin with, right? And then they substitute the candy for something else as time goes on. Post-war panic and the development of the African colonies as well. They were heavily involved in, in programs for the African colonies. After the war, it shared the offices off. Listen, the nature... Conservancy in Belgrave Square, London, right? So here is the Eugenic Society and National uh, Political and Economic Planning Committee, all private, all private NGOs hmm, that formed for themselves on behalf of the real rulers of the world, of course, with top financiers and everything there, and bankers and, and everything there. Right? And it says here, they end up pushing for a National Health Service and development of the African colonies. After it shared offices at the Nature Conservancy in Belgrave Square, London, producing reports such as opportunities in industry and advisory committees in British government. Uh, so, so here again, advisory committees. See? What do you think the Council on Foreign Relations? It's it says on their own website, advisory committee, advise governments. Well, do you elect to advise No, you don't, no. In 1970, the PEP merged with the Centre for the Study of Social Policy. See? Now, social policy covers everything, folks. And became the Policy Studies Institute. Isn't that interesting, eh? So the Political and Economic Planning Committee became the Policy Studies Institute. The Centre for the Study of Social Policy. So they, just, so they advise governments on social policy. Did you vote them in? No. Nope. Not at all. But it's got chemists here, research chemist Henry Burnbury. Interesting, a chemist, eh? Is one that was on the panel of the first board. Civil servants, at, at Dennis Roth, of course. It says here, Israel Saif, director at Marks and Spencer. And Elmhurst as well. Uh, zoologists were, were members of it too. Again, eugenics, you see. They, they used animals... Uh, behavior, but really to apply to humans, study them, as a, because humans, they say, are animals, you say. And it was Julian Huxley, remember, who said himself that they, they, their job, UNESCO, he said in a speech, was to knock man off his stool, or his, you know, his high stool, as a supreme being on the planet. And they would train the public that you're just another creature, and maybe an inferior creature. You see what I'm saying? This is, this is, this is the whole agenda here. And when you look at all these characters around you with ecology, uh, sustainability, too many of you, the wrong kind of people, etc., etc. And here's what the Nature Conservancy, you see, they're, they're allied with, right? It's a charitable environmental organization headquartered for the U.S. in Arlington, Virginia. Is there anything else in Arlington, Virginia, folks? You think, hmm? A massive charitable 
environmental organization. Hmm. So it is to conserve lands and waters on which life depends. Interesting, eh? The Conservancy pursues non-confrontational, pragmatic solutions, meaning brainwashing the children, to conservation's challenge, working with partners including indigenous communities, businesses, governments, multilateral institutions, and other non-profits. Well, do you get a vote on that? No, no. It's interesting to even just read that kind of stuff here. The nature of conservancy now impacts conservation in 72 countries, including 50 states of the United States. Most of the folk won't even know that themselves. The conservancy has over 1 million members and has protected more than 119 million acres of land and thousands of miles of rivers worldwide. It also operates more than 100 marine conservation projects globally. The organization's assets totaled 6.71 billion as of 2015. It's the largest environmental non-profit by assets and by revenue in the Americas. Interesting. And they're into land grabs all over the place too, under the guise of conservation. And I've given talks about the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, Prince Philip. Oh, he's the head of so many organizations in the past, giving profound statements, right here. I mean, there's nothing hidden about this guy. And, and he, he, he runs all these different world wildlife funds and all the rest of it. Too many people, when there's too many animals, you have to cut them off. And you really, you have to look at people much the same way, etc., etc., etc. One of his main speeches in Switzerland, uh, he talked like that, in fact, but quite openly about it. So all these conservation things are really um, very false. They have a mission, and so much of the best farming territory across Africa and so on, belonging to the World Wildlife Fund and all the other organizations is head off. It's the best farming areas. They can't allow folk into farm. Be the same elsewhere too, folks. Interesting, eh? Also, I'll put up Antonio Guterres, uh, from the United Nations is opening remarks at the World Government Summit in 2017 World Government Summit that's the guy they put in charge of the, I think it was the United Nations uh, eventually and they have the same speeches too when they go to the World Economic Forum again getting back to Facebook that how they're, how they're basically going to give you a new privacy focused vision which you can reverse that if you want because if you never learn folks it's your own fault hmm? A privacy-focused vision and confirms that WhatsApp and Messenger and Instagram messaging will be merged in a single platform. Well, there you go. Do you really think there are different private organizations out there running all as one massive organization with many faces with the Internet? And as, as you watch, you know, I, I sometimes read a, a, a story just to give you a little start. Into and shock into life. Eh? Real life child snatcher reveals how she's paid fifteen pounds per abduction by Philippine gangs, who set her a quota of two a week and then sell them to pedophiles with prices determined by their looks. This is one person who was caught right in the Philippines. Fifteen pounds per abduction. That's a lot of money for the Philippines. A female kidnapper has revealed sickening details of how gangs abduct children in the Philippines to sell to foreign pedophiles with bonuses for how pretty they are. Lilibeth Bustamante was caught trying to walk away with a 10-year-old girl in uh, Paracas City on February the 20th. 
should play in front of her house when Bismanti took her by the arm and told her to come with her to the store, but a neighbor intervened when he noticed the girl asking for help. So she was caught, and she spilled the beans. And uh, so it was a 10-year-old girl. She was abducted on this occasion in February. And then she told the police the, the details, horrifying details of the criminal gangs who sell the children into sex slavery. And this would be across the world too, but yeah. And they'll put them into all these different um, movies, the sex movies. And uh, there'll be a waiting list of these pervs. I'm sure we're wanting to get first go with these children. And do you think they're going to let these children live? They can recognize people, folk. You better understand what's happening in the world here. As, and no one cares because you've been taught, you've been taught that life is cheap by those who rule you. They've trained you step by step, like Huxley saying, knocking you off your pedestal. That's already done. And people have been taught, they're Midas, and they're, oh, so what, you know? And your daily fear is, is getting towards pedophilia if you're watching television with the stuff they're pushing on it. And by the way, that eventually, I've said before, that eventually the agenda uh, is they knock the pillars down step by step. The next step is, is, is for, they call it intergenerational sex. There'll be no such term as pedophilia, and, and there'll be no crime either, as, as they normalize it. And they normalize it when society, the society is no longer a strong society with strong cultural morals. That's when they do it. And we're already there. Look what the folk are watching. They're stuck on... They're addicted to, to basically uh, pornography. Uh, even the stuff they show on, on mainstream television as entertainment is, is just the same kind of stuff, even in the ads. So articles like this should, at one time, you would have had mass movements forming to, to stop this kind of thing happening. Not anymore, because there's no opposition, and that's where you've been brought to, step by step. Um, sorry to prattle on too. As I say, I haven't had time to work out anything in any way at all. I generally try to talk from a, the top of my head, which is what I'm doing tonight. I hope you understand that everything you've been trained to believe is, as it is, is completely different. They have different agendas. That's why George Orwell showed you what the Ministry of Love was. It's the opposite. And the Ministry of Truth and all the other ministries are the opposites, folks. But they train you to believe, to believe in the name itself. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. They're here to take care of us. Mm-hmm. Well... From myself, I beg you out and do some shoveling shortly. I'm Alan Watt from Ontario, Canada, and it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>